Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest this week is Giles Martin, producer, mixer extraordinaire. Giles, good to have you. Oh, Bob, it's so nice to see you. Thank okay. You. you know, the elephant in the room, of course, is your father is George Martin, who produced the Beatles records. Yeah. What year were you born? I was born in 69. I was actually born on... Uh, on John Lennon's birthday, October 9th, 1969. And, really? Uh, I think my dad was doing Abbey Road when I was born. And John came to the studios and my dad told him that I was born on the same day as him, as his birthday. And John said, now you know what sort of arsehole he's going to turn out to be like, Ben. <laughs> so that's how I came into the world. You know, that was one of the great things in the Jan Leonard book. He was talking about meeting John Lennon and going to dinner with or lunch with him in San Francisco with Yoko. And fans came up for autographs and John said, fuck off. Yeah, that's a, that, that was the uh, <laughs> that was his thing. I mean, he was he was my dad always said about John that he was um, one of those people that you wanted to be close to, but you were scared of being close to because you could be so absurdic, you know, like the, the the cool kid at school. That's what, what John Lennon was like. Wow. So since you shared a birthday, did that ever come up as, you know, obviously John Lennon died 11 years after you were born, but did you ever celebrate, you know, and acknowledge it that it was identical? No, um, it's, it's, it haunts me. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, there's been occasions you know, we did the I did the love show in Vegas, and then they did they did a documentary on it, and the screen of the documentary is was, was on my birthday because it was celebrating John Lennon's birthday. It's always that thing. It's like there's something. Can you go to this? It's John Lennon's birthday. And you go, well, that's actually it clashes my birthday as well. So there's that. It's a curse more than one. Well, it's like someone who has a birthday on uh, Christmas. Yeah, exactly. and they only get one it's gift. Not as bad as that, but it is like that. Okay, so you're born in '69. How long does it take until you recognize what your father does for a living? Oh, a long time. A long time, funny enough. It's a, you have to understand, it's, it, I, I tell this to people and they, get, they don't believe me, but my dad wasn't at all cool because he did the Beatles when I was growing up. Not cool to you or cool to people in general? To cool to people in general. I remember there was a time where he couldn't get, he couldn't get work because he'd done the Beatles. You know, because the, he went off, you know, I, my, my, my period of growing up was I... Um, we, he worked on a. I, we actually. I grew up in, here in Los Angeles for two years. Um, at the age of six, my father's working with the band America. Um, and he came back. We came back from Los Angeles. Went to, um, back in London again. And you know, he he found it hard to get work. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. A friend of mine is Bob Ezrin, another legendary producer, yeah. and he did Pink Floyd, The Wall, one of the biggest albums of all time. And he came back to Toronto waiting, and the phone didn't ring. Yeah, that's. <laughs> It's it's what it's funny it's it's funny that it's funny what what happens like that and and so you know and also I, you know I was really into I played the guitar I was really into like humble pie I was massively into Steve Ray Vaughan you know I thought really yeah I was that's that I was blues blues guitarist I was I was going to be you know having <laughs> having definitely not been born in the ghetto I thought I'd be a blues guitarist and that was my passion. Um, I was then really into Free, into Paul Kossoff and Paul Rogers. You know, there's a two double album on A&M. It's called Molten Gold or something. Not only does it have, you know, 
uh, I'll be creeping in the Steeler. Those you go back and listen, that shit was oh, unbelievable. They were great. I mean, there's a, there's there's footage of of them at the Isle of Wight Festival. Have you seen it with? Uh, you know, it's funny when you see the two microphones. I'm trying to work out why Paul has two microphones. Is it because one's monitors and one's the PA? I mean, who knows? Right. But there's a but, but you know, there's footage of that, and it's it's beautiful, simple, economic in music. There's only there's, there's drums, bass, and guitar, and right. that's it. It's like you know Led Zeppelin. It's that format, and you kind of miss that these days to a certain extent. But but I was into that, and it wasn't really. I don't think I'd heard the White Album until I was about 19. Really? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it. And, but I remember being on a plane with my dad. And, uh, and I, it was when I, you know, I wanted to do music as a kid. Um, to what degree, because your father worked in music, to what degree was music playing in your household? You know, we didn't have a hi-fi at home. You did not have a no, hi-fi? We, we didn't have How about even kids. in your room? No, no. I, I mean, we have, my, sis, my sister and I have a sister who's two years older, and we had one of those... Um, you know, we had a we had a, a, a plastic kids turntable, right? And I remember the, actually the first album I remember having. I had a bunch of we had a bunch of records, obviously records that my dad had at that time. One was Abbey Road, which would, and I suppose it would have only been at this stage about six years old. I thought, which is kind of crazy thinking about kind of getting old, um, six years old. And then the other one was Live and Let Die, the motion picture soundtrack my father recorded. I remember having the, the I remember the, you remember the cover. This is the great thing about albums. You remember the covers of albums, of course. Um, we had a Carol King. Um, album as well. It wasn't Tapestry. It was it was a kids album she made, um, and we played. And I remember that. But my my father, my I would, the, the the one thing is that as I had is my father played the piano a lot. He was doing a lot of arranging at that time. In fact, when I was at play school, sort of at, at the age of four or five, they went around the class asking what the parents did, and I said, my dad just sits, sits home and plays the piano. <laughs> they, you know that was because so there was music in the house, but. My parents were very careful, um, and I don't know why. I've, I've never really understood why they sort of kept music away from me to a certain degree. I went on my own journey, and then me and my dad met up later um, for various reasons. But So just to go to the end before we go back to the beginning, at what point did you meet up later? Well, um, my father, uh, which is known now but we kept it secret, lost his, lost his hearing. Um, now, was that attributable to his work, or was it just genetic? He always blames it on his on his work. He used to sit. If you look at the photographs or the or videos of the Beatles, he would sit between the speakers. You know, you see this um, famous such a Studio Two where the band are performing. There's there's a couple of films you see where my right. father stuck with his head between the speakers, and he also blamed it on Jeff Beck. He worked on Wired and Blow by Blow in 1970. Which are the two best Jeff Beck records? Yeah, which are the two best Jeff? Right. And even Jeff says those two Jeff right. Beck records. But they, but yeah, he and he and he he blames Jeff for going deaf. I mean, it's that you know I know a lot about it because my father. It was it, it was it was you know his one regret in life is his is his deafness. And so he started going deaf, and he didn't want to tell anyone. Um, and how old was he at that point? Let me have a think. He would have been. It would have been. I would have been um, sixteen. So he, he was probably. He was probably in his early fifties. Okay. And uh, he noticed it when they were. He he, he noticed it when um, we do we do different kilohertz cycles lining up a tape machine. Right. And he went in the studios, and you could see the meters move, and you couldn't hear it. And it was like it was like fifteen cycles and ten cycles or whatever it is, and he realized that he couldn't. You know, he suddenly realized that there was sound playing and he wasn't hearing it. And he was a person that was known for his ears, and he realized it would be the end of him. And so he brought me in, like almost like a seeing eye dog, and that was my job. My job was to hear the high frequencies. And he taught me. It was it's a, it's a bizarre way of learning. He taught me 
um, hearing from a high end down because I have to replace what he couldn't hear. I wouldn't talk to him about what he could hear, but like high violins and cymbals, and they would move further down. And we'd do tests together on a piano where his where the notes would start disappearing. And so I learned about frequencies from that, funny enough, because I was aware I could hear what he wasn't hearing, if that makes sense. And outside the studio in the home, would he wear the hearing aids? Yeah, he would wear he would wear hearing aids. Um, it came. It was a. It's a. It was a big push for him. It was a, he had. You know, he always said that you know, if you wear hearing aids, you're deaf. But if you wear glasses, you're not seen as being blind. And that bothered him. The stigma of it, actually. Um, but yeah, he wore hearing aids, and his his hearing became. You know, he he was pretty. He died actually two years ago on March 28th, so two years ago last week, I guess. Um, and he uh, he was he you know he was pretty profoundly deaf when he died. He could hear me pretty well because I've got a low voice and its frequencies. Um, but it's, it's very funny stories. He worked with a man Ultravox in the in right. in the 80s. I remember I was 16, and uh, uh, the, he came out of the studio and the bass player Chris Cross was going in and said, uh, "How's it going in there, George? Is it going okay?" And my dad held up his plate and said, uh, two boiled eggs." <laughs> he thought he asked him what he had for lunch. So you know, it's 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 lots. You know, and as as a kid, my 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 mum who's who's still alive has a wicked sense of humour. You know, there'd be things like you know, she'd say, "There's a nice green taxi," and he'd go, "Where's nice green factory?" You know, there was a constant in the home. There was a constant things, and it was just the thing we grew up with. So you're growing up. Your sister is two years older. What is she? What's her life like now? Well, she's she's um, she's amazing. She, she, sadly, she her husband her husband died six years ago. She has three children, which we, which I try and look after as well. And she is a um, she's she runs um, two companies actually now. She's a she's a marketeer and does things like that. Nothing to do with music. And that is in London. That's in London. Yeah. Okay. So now you're in the house. Your father's playing the piano. When he was working, could you interrupt him? Yeah. I mean. I remember being on a skiing holiday. This is how uh, my my dad, who I loved dearly, who was a very nice man, was pretty hard on me. I mean, you know, I was okay at music. I was pretty. I was better than music than my friends. You know, it wasn't you know, no genius, but I was. I was. And I remember being being fourteen years old. I, and you remember these things. And he was a, he was doing an arrangement. I think he was trying to work. He he was he nearly wrote the the the, the music for the mission, the film, the mission. Right. He sadly got fired by uh, when they you know classic film style. Um, and he was trying to compose something, and we were on holiday, and he was using the hotel piano. And I went up to him, and he said, Hello, you know, hi, hi, Giles. I said, you know, I, he goes, how are you doing? I said, yeah. He goes, he goes, you know, what do you want to do? I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to do what you do, Dad, you know, learning, you know, learning the piano and stuff. And he goes, you, you, you won't be able to do that. And I said, well, why not? And he goes, I don't, think you, I don't think you're good enough. I wow! Know, I know. Can you okay. imagine? Does yeah. that still hobble you today? Can- oh God, it hobbles me. It hobbles me. I mean, I I said to him uh, on his, you know, on his on his deathbed. Um, my dad took a long time um, to die. It's a terrible thing to say, but he'd right. find this funny as well. We'd joke about it. I mean, we were very close. I'd say I'd come in, and you know, I ended up sleeping next to him at certain stages, and I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'd say in the morning, I say, "You're still here, then, are you?" And he'd go, <laughs> "Piss off, Giles." How long did it take him to die? Well, he was sick. He was sick, and he became very sick in January. He died in March, but it okay. was a, it was a, it was a long process, and and I you know, and it was <laughs> there's nothing good about it apart from the fact you get to say all the things you want to say, and I said to him, um, "Dad, do you ever?" Do you ever uh, do you ever think you're not good at music? And he was immobile, and he closed his eyes. I was holding his hand. He said, "That's a strange thing to ask me." And I said, "Well, not really, because I've just been asked to do this film, and and I always think, you know, I can't do it. You know, 
even, you know, I told you I was seeing Stephen Tyler on Saturday. I feel nervous about, you know, I'm constantly nervous about meeting people. He goes, but I think you're great at what you do. I think you're amazing. I think you're you're better than I am. I said, well, thanks, Dad, but I'm not. But thank you. I said, do you ever feel like that? And he closed his eyes and he thought and he opened them and he said, no, no, I I always thought I was brilliant. (laughs) And and it's and it's it's you know and he was and and it was it was it, it's it's the it's the thing that it's the thing that that it was just envy I felt envy and I think it stemmed from that moment when he said to me you know I don't think you're good enough that it's a constant battle. But by the same token, when he did say on his deathbed how great you were, did that compensate for it? No, it doesn't because you 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 wear the clothes that, that you think motivate you. You know, without sounding like a therapy session, but you do kind of it suits you to go through this. You know, it, it's it's I'm quite a happy person, and I and I feel like I'm you know, I feel like I'm reasonably nice to people, but but you know, you 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 kind of you go through this air of desperation that people don't realize that you do in your studios, and then you come out the other side, and you have to you have to question everything you do, and it's 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 good to have that in a way, and so it suits me. So every time you do a project. It's like pushing a boulder up a hill. You're not quite sure you can do it. It's a, it's a mixture of pushing a boulder up the hill, and then the hill, the, then the 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 boulder will sail down uninterrupted until it hits the next mountain. Yeah, I mean that's a, it's like a it's like a it's like a you know I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. Wait a second, I'm a genius. No, I'm terrible again. That's what it. That's what it's like. When people approach you for work, do you ever say no? I don't think I can do this. Um. That's a that's a that's a good no. I don't really. I think you know if I've done if I've done the other thing I couldn't do. I could probably not do this in a strange way. <laughs> I just it's 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 a nice way of constantly surprising myself. And I'm not saying this through any false modesty. I just it's generally how I feel. So let's go back. You're in the house. Your father's playing the piano. There's no uh, stereo in the living room. You have the kids' uh, record player. What kind of music are you listening to? Well, I mean, I, I say we're listening to. I generally the records I had when I was very young. The records I had was with the with the records my father was making. You know, he was he was working on Paul McCartney albums on America. I was aware of, aware of America. He went with Neil Sedaka. You know, there was a there was a, I knew all of this stuff because it was on in the house, um, or he'd be on the car. He would actually listen to mixes in the car. Okay. You know, we'd be I'd be where's dad, and he'd be sitting outside the car because we had no stereo home, um, and then. And then it's funny. I remember the best, the first album I ever bought was a cassette because I'm the, I'm a, you know, very, I'm, that a, era. I'm a cassette era, yeah. Um, it was ELO Time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which isn't, which isn't, and I said to Jeff, I met Jeff Lynn, you know, I know Jeff Lynn now. And I said, yours is the first album I ever, ever bought. And he goes, you know, what was that? I said, ELO Time. He goes, well, that was a shit album. <laughs> Because I'm a huge fan of El Dorado, but time. Yeah, no, I know no, it's I'm not, not a good album. But you, I mean, you can't change history. That was exactly. the fact. I mean, it's like you know, you do interviews. You go, should you make up something really cool? Like you know, it was rumors. I'm, I'm glad that you're that, honest. You know. It's like you know, I read these uh, interviews. What are your favorite books? What are your favorite records? Oh yeah, and they're trying to look cool as yeah. to bold what the truth is. There's, there, yeah, there's no point. And then, and then it was you know, there was a you know, obviously there was it's 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 strange. I mean, there was um, you know, there were bands around. I liked as a kid. I liked you know, I liked. Listen like these by NXS, which was I remember because an Australian friend of mine. I loved Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, who were, right. who were you know there was never made of, it over here, but never made day. it. But you know there was there was a bunch of bands in that era. I didn't really. It's funny. I didn't really. The eighties didn't really strike me. I, you know, I was growing up in the eighties. I mean, but I didn't really that whole. Well, that's interesting 80s sound. because most of the sounds certainly for the first half of the eighties came from England. 
Yeah, but it didn't. It didn't. It didn't touch me in the right way. It wasn't like you know. It wasn't a. It, it, you were a blues guy. Yeah, I was, I'm a blues. As you can tell by my voice, I'm a blues guy through and through. But yeah, I'm a yeah. I was, I was a blues guy. I liked. I liked. Um, I like you know. Uh, music pushing air through your ears, you know. I like the sense. I didn't want, didn't want, didn't like the sense of um, it. Didn't electronica hadn't hit me. I appreciate it more now than I did then. Um, and then I went to, you know, I, I, through, through Scub, you know, you learn to play the guitar and then and the piano, and you get into guitar players. Basically, you start listening to guitar players. You know. So how did you become a guitar player? Well, my parents. I was banned from playing the guitar by my parents. Um, Literally. Yeah, they didn't want me to play the guitar. They they thought I'd be a failed rock star. Or, I think there was an element in a funny way, with my father. And this sounds terrible, but that he, he he there was one side he was worried about me being a failure, and there was another side he was worried about me making him look bad by being this wannabe rock wow. star. I think there was an element of that. Certainly, definitely. Um, but I, but I, I, I actually bought a ukulele because I could afford a ukulele, um, and learned by the ukulele. And the ukulele has the, the um, I, my 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 sister's son had a ukulele. Explained to him, it's you know, it's the the four strings are the same as the guitar. You just have to fill in the bass strings later when you learn to play the guitar. So I did that. It became not about a ukulele player. And then then I borrowed at school. I was at a boarding school, and a guy had a guitar. So. I used to use his guitar. And then uh, my, for some reason, I don't know where this performance thing came from, I, uh, myself and actually still my best friend, we decided we'd go busking and we ended up playing in pubs and we were about 15 or 16. We played in pubs when we only knew three songs. And what were those three songs? Um, American Pie. Okay. I'd see, I'd see, I should be making up something cooler. No, no, that's good for a bar. You get people singing along. Um, is She Really Going Out With It by Joe Jackson. Love that record. But not the middle section because we couldn't work it out. <laughs> and I think No Woman No Cry, I think, was the three songs we knew. Wow, very yeah. good that you can even remember yeah, that. Yeah, well, you know, I can still play them now. And so, okay, so you're playing in the pubs, and what's the step after that? Playing the pubs, then we started playing in playing in bars. I went to university, and then so I was going to university at Manchester. Okay, so I got a I got a place at Berklee College of Music, and and my and it's funny. My dad said, you know, and I don't regret this. And my dad said, I don't want you to go to Berklee College of Music. You know, if you want, if you really want to do this music thing, I can I can I can teach you. But go and get a proper degree. And I was, you know, I was good at English, and I was good at I was reasonably academic, and I did a I did a degree in American politics and literature. Would you believe? No. So yeah, I know. And uh, and played music and and I was at Manchester. Manchester had a whole you know the, the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. Well, that was the Tony Wilson era. Yeah, it was the Tony Wilson era, nineteen eighty nine, um, and it was great. It was it was fantastic. It was a fantastic time. Um, and why didn't almost none of those bands make it in the United States? There was nothing slick about them. There was nothing slick about any of those bands, and I think that in that era of nice of that era in the in the states, the, it, there was a slickness to the to your music over here. And I think that's what it was. I think they um, there was a, there's that undercurrent goth era of you know never tear us apart and Joy Division right. and that sort of stuff. I think that that kind of bubbled under for a bit in, in America, but but it wasn't really um, it was such a scene. And then and then funny enough, things like the Chemical Brothers, which came. I was at university with the Chemical Brothers, and actually the guitarist from Radiohead was at was at Ed was at was at Manchester with me. Um, there was a there was there was this there was a scene that that broke into America after that. So just right. after we were we were doing stuff. Yeah. Now, when you were in college, university, as you say, the hacienda, all that stuff, were those big things? Did you go? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was uh, <laughs> choose your weapon of choice. I was never really. Um, you know the whole ecstasy and 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 what we used to call fast drug boom. 
Well, what is what is that? You know, like you know the amphetamine ecstasy dance okay. world. I never really got into. I mean, it was crazy. I I remember I remember at my at the at the uh, final we used to call it we used to call them balls, whatever they call in America. You know the the uh, the the end of term thing was at a club called the Roxy, which had a rubber dance floor that used to used to um, throb in time with the music. That and was it, intentional. That was intentional. Okay. And I stood on the balcony and. Everyone was like, it was the acid days of the smiley face and everyone singing free, free your mind, we all must be free, all that sort of stuff. But it was like, like a German rally. Everyone was doing exactly the same thing. And I thought, this isn't, this isn't freeing your mind. This is, and I was more of a stoner culture guitar player. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really my scene. But so it, the Hacienda was very much a dance-driven culture. I kind of really, I, f- I regret that I didn't become more part of it because I think it's very influential. But I mean, when I, did, when I did my final exams at university, the guy next to me was sucking a dummy. Wow, you know, it was a, it was a pretty crazy time. And was, but uh, to what degree, living in Manchester at that time, did that culture dominate, or other people were aware of it? It was pretty big. It it, it reverberated around certainly around the UK and Europe. That 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 dance culture and those bands. Um, it was the biggest music hub in it. Just by coincidence, it was the biggest party town. You know, there was it was you know Manchester had thirty six thousand students when I was there. It was pretty big. Um, you know, there's much bigger places now, but it was, and so it did. Yeah, it was it was pretty influential. And then out of that, obviously stemmed bands like Oasis. Right. Um, which was, you know, when I left college, you know, Oasis started to become very big. And funny, if they people get people get quite upset when I say this. They did the Beatles a lot of favors. And what do you mean by that? Well, I mean the Beatles um, in the UK. Anyway, I, I can't talk about America because I wasn't living there. But in the UK, you know, and probably I think in a funny way, rightfully so, were a band that had happened, and Oasis put them. Uh, they they'll always be on a pedal star. I'm not saying that right. without Oasis, but they but they certainly became a culturally re- cultural relevant band much quicker, or or had that resurgence in the UK and stayed there for, from the the Oasis period onward, um, because the because that was the it was you know the, you know we're we're not as big as the Beatles and then we, almost like when Oasis said we're bigger than the Beatles it was the same as John Lennon saying we're bigger than Jesus right right it was a strange kind of you know reflection on 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 what went on before. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was an amazing time. And I was playing in a band, a deeply unsuccessful band, uh, a sort of indie indie rock band that was that was great because I was with friends and we toured Germany and went to Canada and did this sort of stuff. And and it was, a, you know, it was, it was it was a time where if you can be in a van with a band and go on tours and sleep in buses and sleep and you know I slept in a dog basket in Coventry and you know and all this sort of stuff, you you can do that. You can get on with people in the studios, and you can get on with people in life. And it's a you know, if you you know that it taught me a huge amount. Let's go back. You're talking about the uh, club with the rubber floor, and your viewpoint on that. Your identity: Are you a member of the group, or are you an outsider judging the group? I've always felt like an outsider, not judging in a bad way, but I've always been an outsider. You know, I've always been. I was a you know, I was a good rugby player. I was in this team. You know, and and. And played and played to quite a high standard, but always felt like an outsider. I was the only guitar player, musician in a rugby team, you know, obviously. But I always right, felt right. like I was this. There was this juxtaposition um, that that I, it suited me. You know, it's funny. You know, you, you're left. You know, you, you have to understand that if you're a, if you're a kid growing up, where you're, um, you know, I grew up in studios. I grew up in Montserrat in the Caribbean, where there were these bands. I mean, you know, I'd have to have dinner with Earth, Wind, and Fire 
or with Stevie Wonder or with uh, but it wasn't it it sounds amazing but as a kid you're just sold to sit at the table and behave you know that's that's how it is and you're on show all the time it's and so you're you become this observer you become by nature this sort of outsider to a certain degree and I was the same when I was at university it doesn't leave you does it make you more comfortable with famous rich celebrities well, I, I, it's it's one of those. Yes, it does. I never, I never take. Um, yeah, I don't see them as any anything anything different. I think that's what it is. I mean, right. I see they 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 can they can fire you fairly easily, but I mean, so can anyone else. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think I think I have a good relationship with famous rich rich celebrities, if you like, because I'm always honest. That's the thing. Right. Well, I just I went to college where forty five percent of the people were from prep school, and a lot of them, their parents literally ran household name companies. And where I grew up, I didn't know anybody like that, and it really taught me how to interact that they're just yeah. normal people. But a lot of people don't have that experience, and they're starstruck even to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know you meet people who are impressive and unimpressive. You know, you know, like you know, like, as you know, you know a lot of people. Right. You're, you're a huge influence, and you know. A lot of people that are celebrities follow you. You know, right. people I know get into me goes, you know, Bob, Bob said this. Bob, it's very, you know, it's 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 which is a which is it's it's a well, it's a responsibility, I suppose. Right. But but I think that I, um, you know, the funny thing about it, like if you take Paul McCartney for instance, who I know very well um, and has has uh, and I actually love him dearly. He's always been good to me. He's a bit like Forrest Gump in a way. There's something very interesting about him, apart from the fact he's Paul McCartney, but his his experiences he's had. Are just extraordinary, you know. It's like you know, you're talking to him. And he, to, you know, he'll go from the time you know when recounting when he met Elvis to being in the same hotel as the England World Cup football team when they won the World Cup to you know Muhammad Ali to whatever. It's that. It's right. a bit like Forrest Gump. It's that sort of. I know it's. A, I know it's trivializing something that's important, but to me, that's. It's kind of like you have to break it down to what you understand. Right, right. Same thing like Quincy Jones, although yeah. Quincy advertises a little bit more. But you sit there, when I was with this king and I was yeah. that, blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, it's funny. Quincy, I, I know Quincy because I've known him growing up because he was, he was the contemporary of my dad. And they were very close, in fact, even though they're sort of like counter-opposite. They, you know, and they're like yin, yin, yang, right. if you like the production. Well, they both have the same kind of backgrounds, but white and black. You know, I think I can say that. It's like, you know, yeah, I don't think there's you know, anything you know, offensive you know, in that. Quince, Quincy, is a, Quincy is a pure jazz artist. And my dad was a Baroque white, you know, not right. actually low, low class. Not, not, you know, my dad transformed himself to an upper class gent from, 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 from a very humble background. And, and they both worked their way through, had to navigate their way through society and the rules of society to get where they got to. And they did very well. And they, and they were very, very close. They were incredibly close. And I, I still um, talk to Quincy. Okay, we'll return to this conversation with Giles Martin, sound experience leader for Sonos and son of George Martin and producer and mixer extraordinaire in his own right in a moment. This is Bob Lefsitz. Do you like the podcast? If so, come check out the one-on-one interviews I'll be having with movers and shakers in the music and media industries at the end of April at my Music Media Summit in Santa Barbara. Not only can you listen in to the conversations, but you can meet the bigwigs and hang. They have insight and influence over where it's all going. Go to musicmediasummit.com for tickets and more information. See you in Santa Barbara. Let's continue the conversation with the sound experience leader for Sonos and son of the great Beatles engineer, George Martin. 
Let's go back to Montserrat, because that's one thing we notice from reading the credits, which we do inveterately in the 70s, and when we say Air Studios in Montserrat. How did that come together to the degree you know? Well, I know. I mean, I, my, my father, my father, was, <laughs> my father, it was funny. My, so my, my, my dad, um, he, he, which I, you know, we, we, we talked about once before and I said, you know, we shouldn't really talk about this. But my dad actually did, um, he, he managed to sell his royalties to the Beatles stream and, um, and end up with a trade-off, which, which is part of this record Chrysalis. And he ended up building studios with the money he got. And he decided, wouldn't it be great? He wanted to build a studio that was unlike no other. And he looked at building a studio on a, on, a, on a ship. That was his first idea. And he actually was thinking about buying a Scandinavian ferry and building a studio there. And then he realized the engine noise would be getting get into the isolation on a ferry's nightmare. So he ended up looking for a place, and he chose Montserrat, which is not in the Caribbean, a very um, rugged, uh, no white sand beaches, black sand beaches, and an old volcano. And it was, you know, it was a crazy idea. Um, and he built a world-class studio. So he built a studio which was like Abbey Road but in the Caribbean. Um, and it became probably one of the most successful studios as far as professionally goes in, um, you know, in, at that time. You know, everything from Brothers in Arms to, to Michael Jackson to, you know, the, the, the number of, you know, to the police, obviously, the police recorded everything out there. Uh, Elton John recorded out there. Um, just about everyone went to Montserrat. Um, it never made any money. I mean, because it was a really <laughs> bad idea. Because to have a studio that's just one studio with everything else, you know, with the with the cost, I think, you know, it cost him uh, on top of you know, it cost him half a million dollars after he built it. Um, but it was great. You know, he, he he was one of those guys that didn't really. He he was a proper artist, and the fact he didn't do anything for the reason why he did it is because he thought it was a good idea and it was fun. Okay. You know, the English are world travelers. I've never been to Montserrat. Where, literally, where is it in the Caribbean? It's next to Antigua. It's okay. next to Antigua. You can see it because, because sadly, with Montserrat, the volcano erupted. This volcano, this this place we played to as kids. In fact, I went up to, I climbed the mountains with Elton John's boyfriend at the time. You know, <laughs> on the on the, and I came back to school, and he'd married, and he, then he got engaged to Renata, who right. was the two of the tape up, and it was like, wait a second, I, and you know, this bizarre life you lead, um, where I left. And we climbed the we climbed this we used to go climb to this um, waterfall, and all of that doesn't exist anymore. It's now mountains because the volcano, which was just this hot springs, decided to erupt after 120 years and destroyed the island. So it's next to it's next to Antigua. Okay, and when you were there, how many people would live there? Uh, there were 12,000. Now there's about three and a half thousand on it. And then how big was the island? <laughs> it's getting bigger. <laughs> the answer, the, the answer, oh, it's difficult. I bet say the answer is the Isle of Wight. That would be nothing to anyone in America. It's uh, three miles by four miles. So sorry, no, seven miles by four miles. So very small. Small island, yeah. Small island. There was nothing really on it, and that's what was you know. And you could only get to it by um, chartered small plane. The runway was tiny, um, and that's why I think my father chose it because you know. In fact, Sting bought, Sting had a house out there. Elton had a house out there. Jeff Emmerich, who was an engineer, that my father. He ended up building a studio, a house over there. You know, you could go there, and you wouldn't. People would not get hassled because there was no, there was no real um, white tourists on the island. And you lived there full time. No, we were. We I spent um, because of trying to run the studios. I, I was at boarding school, and there was a period of time where me, myself, and my sister would go there, and we were pretty much lived there because when we weren't at school, we'd be on Montserrat. You know, I remember. I remember having hard feet because we, we wouldn't wear shoes 
you know, we'd run down tarmac roads and stuff like that. And my friends were Montserratians. Um, now, the studio was destroyed in a storm? The studio got hit by a thing called Hurricane Hugo. Um, and it was, it was a bit like the recent hurricane that just hit the West Indies. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty much, you know, there was the uh, the Bosendorfer Grand Piano. Actually, at the end of it had was a mold growing out of it, and the desk was ruined and, you know, and... And it was it was at a stage, to be honest with you, where the studios never made any money and was a great thing to have. But the 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 hurricane was the final straw. The, and he still owned it when the hurricane. He hit? still owned it. There was, was quite an interesting story. So it had insurance against hurricane, and it was insured with a company called Lloyd's of London, very famous insurance company. And they sent a man out called Mister Hook. I always remember this, who uh, who arrived in Antigua and then disappeared. And he had $500,000, and he disappeared, and they found him in solution. He, he, built, he built a hotel. <laughs> Isn't that Wow, brilliant? wow, yes. And it was, it was one of those things where the Lloyds of London said, well, he's no longer our guy because he's with Carib Insurance. So the West, <laughs> as soon as he lands in Antigua, it's one of those things. And, you know, the, the rules of the West Indies can be slightly different to the other rules. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, and but it was a. Did was he a collect on the insurance ultimately? No, I don't think completely. But I think, listen, it's funny. You know, he was. Um, he didn't want for much. It didn't make a difference. You know, it, did, it, it made a difference, but in the end of it, the whole thing was the whole the whole monster out thing was. Looking back on life, as as he did at the age of ninety, he looked back and goes, "You know, would he take it away from him? Would he take that trip with the, the amount of records that were made, the amount of fun that people had? You know, from you know from." From bands that recorded there, from James Taylor to Jerry Rafferty to 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 it just about. I mean, it, it was destroying the range. I mean, from you know status quo to Stevie Wonder it was kind of right. bizarre. It was like you know everyone went there. I think the Climax Blues Band were the first person to record over there, and and so it, it was. He he made something that made things, and that was the thing. Like you know, it, the, the the true pleasure in life has to be coming up with an idea and seeing it happen. So there was another air studio in London? There was another air studio in London, which he sold to build Montserrat. And then he came back um, and persuaded Chrysalis, which was the company that he'd sort of sold out to, to build another studio's facilities in London called Air Studios Lindhurst, which is a very good studio now. It was funny, he kind of got his own back because having lost all his royalties, he built a studio's that was meant to cost... I think, I think <laughs> eight million, seven million pounds, and cost twenty three million pounds. Like that. You know, it's like he built this, he built this, you know, and, and it's a beautiful, you know, it's like Hans Zimmer. It's his favorite studios in the world. So you know, Coldplay have recorded there. I mean, a lot of people have been to Air. So it's a, it's a great place. Okay, so you are in university. You're playing different gigs. You graduate, and then what? Well, while I was playing, I had a French girlfriend, and while I was playing... Gigs, How does one get a French girlfriend? She, was, she was at university. Oh, okay. you, you, I, I got her drunk, I think. Um, she was at um, university, and, and she um, knew a place in France were looking for a band to play at New Year's Eve. And so this, uh, this is myself and my friend and a drum machine. We were one of those bands. We had, right. like, you know, you know the, the, the quality of the capital K... And we go down. We went down, and 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 a guy saw us play, and 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 we. I played some of my own songs, and he said, "You know, would you write some music for my?" And I end up writing music, music for what for for, for commercials. I end up okay. writing music for Elf Aquitaine, which we tell for the American audience what it's, that is. It's, a, it's, a, it's they sell petrol gas. Right. It's like it wasn't PC, but I ended up doing seven commercials when I was at university, and I sort of got a gig doing commercials. And it was great. It was good money, you know, and I couldn't believe it. And then I left 
when I left university, I thought, what am I going to do? And I wanted to do music. Um, ended up working a little bit in music PR. I, I did PR for UB40 and Tears for Fears. And, How did you get those gigs? Um, I was an intern. I, 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 I wanted to do I, – I, at that stage, I wanted to write music. And I couldn't – I could do commercials. And I, and I thought I'd learn everything. So I, I, and so I was working. So I ended up uh, meeting someone, getting a job in a PR company. I think it was the funny thing. The guy gave me the job because he wanted the PR account for Air Studios in London, which he didn't get given, and then wanted to fire me because of he said, you know, it's, you know. And then very, there was a guy called Alan Edwards who actually ended up man- managing David Bowie. He liked me, and he goes, "Well, listen, I believe in you." And I only did seven months, um, and. I saw a band there called My Life Story at the Marquee, and I said, you know, I think you're really good, and I, I'd like to make a record with you, having no... And we went to a studios in the evening, so I'd work in the day and then go and work nights. And they got Single of the Week in NME. Uh, okay, well, well, a little bit slower. What made you think you could produce a record? I don't know. Um... Had you been into this? How much time? Like, oh yeah, sorry. When I, when I left school, I I spent a year uh, as a as a runner in the studio. I was actually hoovered, um, vacuumed. Sorry, I vacuumed uh, carpets and. Uh, and whose studio was that? That was that was Air. That was Air in London. Air in London. Yeah. Okay. How much time did you spend in the room with your father? Oh, a lot of time, because whenever he had to go in the studios, I went in from the age of sixteen. So, so when you had my uh, the band that you wanted to make a record with, you had experience of a sort. I had been in studios. I knew studios. I knew, you know, I, I this was what I wanted to do, and I was determined I was going to do it. And I wasn't very good, but they, they managed to get, you know, Enemy was a big magazine in right. the UK. It was a new musical, new musical express, and they got single of the week there, and... Uh, Someone put it on my dad's desk and said, you know, your boy's been up to it. I didn't tell my father I was even doing it. And he goes, really? And he, he phoned me up and said, how come you've got Record of the Week and New Music, New Music <laughs> Express? And, um, and that was a, it was a turning point in my life because at the same time, I was offered a big job, head of dance press for Warners. So I was working in this PR company. And I went to go and see this woman. I said, why have you offered me this job? And she goes, we've well, been recommended to you by these journalists who said you should employ him. And I said, but I'm terrible at PR. And um, I phoned up one of the journalists, and he said, uh, I always remember him. He was a guy called Alan Jackson. He wrote for The Times in London. He said, whenever we spoke to you on the phone, you just didn't seem very happy, so we decided to get you another job. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, so I had, a, I had a choice. I earned £27,000 a year plus car to work at Warner Brothers or go off and do music for a living. So I went off and did music for a living. By the same token, there's no safety net. No, there was no safety net. And 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 I think, I think I well, I listen, I... I was very lucky that I spent time then, a lot of time with my dad doing doing stuff. And then when things, uh, I've always been incredibly lucky that when things, when I when I suddenly, I remember, I remember um, thinking to myself, "Oh God, now, now I'm broke." And then the phone would ring, and a guy called Rob Dickens, who was um, he ran Warner Brothers, had just started label Sony. He goes, "I've seen, I saw you in a magazine. I did a fashion shoot. There we are. That's a glamour and glitz." And uh, he said, "You know, do you, do you want to come work for me? I'll pay you fifty thousand pounds, and and uh, you don't have to work full time." And I was like, "Yeah, great." So yeah, I always always managed to get some sort of situation where people. Um, I've always been lucky that people go, you know, hey, do you want to do this? And then, and that gave me the opportunity to actually learn. And I made terrible records and didn't know what I was doing. And then I remember a friend of mine said to me, um, who I was working in the studios at Rack Studios in London, working on a band. Who R-A-K. Were, R-A-K. Work on, this, work on this band who were great. And I knew I wasn't doing a very good job of them. 
and he was working with this band called Shed Seven, who were a band in the nineties, and 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 we became friends. He goes, you know, once you learn how to make it sound good, it gets kind of boring. He said to me, and I always take that because because it took me a while to make to learn, and I know that people may not like everything I do, but I know it'll sound good. Does that make sense? Yes, but yes. if it's boring, does one continue to want to do it? Where's the thrill? No, I think that's the thing. You have to find the thrill, and that's the answer. So you have to do different things. You have to do approach things differently and do different things. Which um, would be like what? Well, in my case, what I ended up doing is so I, I left um, um, – I, 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 I ended up um, being asked – I do music direction. So I ended up music directing the Jubilee – the first Queen's Jubilee at Buckingham Palace. Well, well let's, let's go back a few steps here. You graduate from university. At what point do you give up the dream of being a musician? Um, I, was, I did the band for about six years. So I was always doing lots of different things at the time. I did the band six years. We got signed by a label. We made a record. I, I, I didn't um, – it was just it – was, it was sleeping on floors for too long. And I think at the, by the age of 26 or 27, I thought, you know, I can't – I don't want to sleep on floors anymore. I've been I've been doing this. I've been playing in pubs since I was 15 years old. I still love playing, but I realized that maybe I'm not going to be the world's greatest singer-songwriter or songwriter or, you know, maybe that's not that's not my destiny. Um, and your parents were saying what about when you were a peripatetic singer-songwriter? At, at that stage, my parents, I, I, you know, I rebelled against my parents when I was at university, I didn't care what they said at that stage. You know, and I, were they giving you any money, or could you make it? Uh, being no, a musician? no, they didn't give me any money. Um, I mean, I was very lucky. They gave me. I said they didn't give me any money. They gave me um, my my mum's parents left me twenty thousand pounds, and um, when they passed away, and so I I bought a flat with a mortgage. You know, it's amazing you could do that now. And this—that was and where? That was in Notting Hill Gate. Okay. So that was a good—that was a good thing. I bought it. I bought it there because it was cheap. Right. And then the guy—then the guy made the film, and everything became expensive, which was super for me. But anyway, right. um, yeah, I didn't. I I I I realized that the band wasn't. Um, you know, it was. It was. I love the love the guys. They're still my best friends, but it wasn't working. And, and what are they doing now? Uh, one's a one's a drummer in like he plays with he he, he plays with lots of different bands um, but of, of a different era and uh, the singer works in a bank uh, the guitarist is still a guitar player you know and so so you were really you and the uh, bank guy were the only people who escaped yeah yeah we it's, and it was it was I'm not sure if I escaped in a way um, but yeah and and I was at the same time I was in studios a lot of the time how so. how hard was it to give up the dream, uh, it was. It was. You know, it was, it was harder not making the record I wanted to make with my friends. You know, I wanted to be like I wanted to make Pet Sounds, and they wanted to make a Foo Fighters album. Ah, so, so that, it was easier to give it up. Yeah, so that was that made it easier when it didn't. You know, I didn't like really what we were doing. So, um, I what still, they what they say when you quit. It was one of those things where I was writing all the songs and doing everything, and and there was. A, I remember coming to a rehearsal, and they said, "You know, you know, how come you write? We want to write the songs." And I went, "Okay," and then and then I'd wait two weeks, and we wouldn't have any songs. <laughs> and I'd, you know, it was it was they, it was fine. It was fine. Everyone everyone was broke. Everyone, you know, you know, the keyboard player was eating broken biscuits because that that's all he could afford. You'd buy. I didn't even know they existed. You'd be able to go to stores and buy biscuit rejects from cookie rejects from factories you know it was not a it was it was that you know we lived that life and it was it was it was time you know and so 
You also talk about your father losing his hearing. At what point do you start working with him? When I was 16. So that's the backdrop to everything is I'm okay. doing that the whole time. Um, and he's working on various records, um, doing weird projects. Um, and I'm, I've always done more than one job at the same time. Um, it's what I'm used to. And so I was doing that while... And then I'd do promo tours with him and I'd go and do uh, music direction for concerts with him. Um, what would that be, musical direction for a concert? Well, funny enough, it was dealing with... It, it was actually um, quite often... We did a thing in Japan where... I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous, and it was ridiculous, where a concert arranged with UNICEF had Japanese artists and the idea is they would jam with everyone. It was Bob Dylan, <laughs> John Bon Jovi, Joni Mitchell, um, Ry Kuda, uh, In Excess... Um, it was a, and it was like this big rehearsal room. They go, let's jam, you know, one of, those, <laughs> one of those dreadful ideas. And so I'd do things like that. I'd go over there and I'd be in charge of the band. The band would be, I mean, Jim Keltner, Pino Palladino, Wix Wickens, Phil Palmer on guitar, Ray Cooper on percussion. You know, good. And so, right. and so good. And so I'd teach them, you know, work the songs out with them and work out arrangements. And oh, really? That was my job. Yeah, yeah. That was my job and organize things and and that. So I, you know, I always had confidence that. I always had a good, you know, I think my father, I learned from my father, as Paul says, a good bedside manner where you can steer musicians in the right way without being pompous, I think. And do you know how to read music? I know how to read music, yeah. And how did you learn that? I played the French horn in orchestras when I was at school. And was that your own instigation or your parents said you have to learn an instrument? No, no. I, I, um, I, I learned the trombone first. Because uh, I saw someone play the trombone, and I wanted to go Meek, on the trombone. I thought that'd be a good thing to do. And then, and then the trombone teacher was kind of weird and wanted to play my trombone. It was like kissing an old man. Yeah. So, so I moved to the French horn, and the French horn was a bit like uh, the French horn. You know, it's, it's, I was I was good at treble clef in the key of F because the French horn's in the key of F. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I I I I got injured playing rugby and had to stop the French horn. And it, I was a good horn player. And then you you have to go back to it because you, if you, with back concussion you can't you can't play a wind instrument, especially blowing up a balloon like a French horn. So I went back to it. And it was like giving birth to a cow, and I decided guitar and piano would be easier. Stay right there. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Giles Martin, producer extraordinaire, here on the Bob Left Sets podcast. You're listening to the Bob Left Sets Podcast, recorded at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Each week I interview a new guest to get their story. I want to find out what makes them tick, and I hope listening to these successful people makes you smarter. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review it. Also, please check out earlier episodes. You can hear them all on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now more with Giles Martin, sound experience leader for Sonos. So you said you got the gig being the musical director for the Queen's Jubilee. Yeah. When, what year was that? That was in 19... Uh, sorry, 2002. Okay. But in the interim, you're producing records. In the interim, I'm producing records and, and working, in, 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 working as an in-house producer at Sony. Um, unsuccessfully, I worked, with, worked on a sort of a, you know, rip-off bands, like I worked on a girl band that were trying to be like the Dixie Chicks. Um, writing and producing um, various artists under this guy Rob Dickens, who was a label boss. Um, and it was fascinating. I mean, I'd never been inside a record label before. 
and <laughs> I, my my greatest fears are realized. I think you know, which I, are what? Well, I remember being at an A&R meeting, and there was him, and there, there you know, and I he's a very nice man. I love him dearly. He's a very nice guy, um, and it, and a really you know he taught me a lot because I remember doing working on this band and. And I'd be downstairs in the basement, and he'd, he'd listen to it, and he'd go, it doesn't sound like this, and it'd be No Scrubs by TLC. <laughs> and, I, and I'd go, but I've been in the basement doing this, and this is a multimillion-dollar production. And he'd look at me like, going, well, do you think anyone cares? And that's, that, that taught me a lot, is that taught me there's no excuse. I was saying to someone yesterday, actually, if, if, anyone's making, if you're making a record, if you're trying to make something, Compare it to what you love or compare it to what you think is really, really good and see whether you can beat it, opposed to saying to someone, yeah, but it's my demo. You know, that's, and it's, that taught me a lot that the people don't listen with empathy. Right. For, they don't listen to the fact you've done it. They just listen. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I realized that, um, you know, from being an artist and being a musician, seeing the way decisions are made about roster and record labels. And it, it, it wasn't for me. I'm not, I'm too soft for that in a way. And how, you know, usually you have a certain number of unsuccessful projects and they fire you. Now, what happened in this particular case? Well, it, in this particular case, it was his, um, uh, it wasn't necessarily my responsibility. They were unsuccessful. It wasn't okay. down, down to me. And it got to the stage where, you know, um, I, I'd, I'd sort of was, was going a reputation for doing, you know, bigger projects, and the um, the BBC approached me and see, saw whether I would record the, the first Queen's Jubilee concert, which is a, which they had a bunch of artists because I'd worked on. Okay, is this the same two thousand two project? Same two thousand two project. So you're still working at Sony at that. I still moment. work at Sony, and I left Sony because I realised that, and there was undertones of at the same time my father was talking to me about he wanted to do a Yellow Submarine ballet with a guy called Matthew Bourne. And I thought it was a bit camp for me. I didn't really know anything about ballet. And I, and I had an idea that we could do a Beatles thing with this company called De La Guarda, who are a Cirque du Soleil-like. And so this, there was a bunch of things bubbling under, and I was unhappy with this position in the record label. And so I went off and did the Jubilee concert. Okay, before you, how long did you work at Sony? A year and a half. Oh, so not really that long. Oh, I thought it was years. No, because no, I was in a band. I was in a band. Okay. And then, you know, and then did the and got when I was broke. The guy phoned me up. Did the oh, job. Oh, I thought it was like six or nine years. No, no, no. I wouldn't be able to. I'm not sensible right. enough to stand that long. So they called you for the Queen's Jubilee. How did they call you? How did they find you? They called me because they wanted me. Um, you know, because I was my. You know, it's nepotism. I was my father's son, and they thought I could do the job. They really they called me to see if I could record it. They wanted to release a DVD, and I can't remember what I'd done before, but I'd done something like that before. And so, you know, I decided how many trucks we should get in, all this sort of stuff. And I turned up to the first meeting, and Michael Kamen, I don't know, Jim Michael Kamen. Well, the irony is, is my girlfriend runs a foundation that he started, Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation. Right. The other thing I will say, he was originally in a band called the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, and I saw them open for the Alban Brothers in 1973. For those people who don't know, he went on to have a long career, yeah. you know, writing the Robin Hood song, writing musical scores, working with Metallica. Yeah. I certainly an, know Michael an Kamen. An amazing man. So I'd, I'd met... He's, he unfortunately died of MS yeah. about 10 years ago. So Michael, Michael I'd met in... Japan, because he was involved in, the, in this crazy Japanese concert I mentioned, um, and he was doing the Queen's Jubilee. And what was his role? He was now he was the music director, but he hadn't told anyone how, how ill he was, and he was. And so what? How I turned up the meeting as me being the recording person, right? And they said to me, um, "Would you be? Would you take on the role of doing music director for some of the artists for the Queen's Jubilee?" 
and it was it was one it was a fa- it was a fantastic. They had these artists lined up, and you know, I was basically rehearsing the band, rehearsing the artists, that kind of stuff, making sure. And it was it was like you know they had Brian Wilson. Right. I go, I'll do Brian Wilson. I'd love to work with Brian Wilson. Right. And they go, in that case, you have to do Ricky Martin. And, <laughs> and I go, well, I'll do Ray Davies. He's doing Lola. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. And they go, okay, in that case, you have to do Cliff Richard and, and S Club 7. Or, you know, that was, the, that was the way it would work. Um, so I did that. And uh, under the same, the same. Just so I understand, for those people who are amateurs, if it's a band like, if a, if a band comes and you're the musical director, and they normally perform, what are you actually telling them to do? Well, quite often it's not a band coming. You have a – well, you, you, you talk to them first and you say, how do you want to do the song? And they go, oh, well, you know, uh, we, you know I, I did this gig once in, you know, whatever, and we did it like that. Because generally they, they, you have a house band. The house band there because was actually Phil Collins on drums, Pino again on bass. So I knew the band anyway. I see. So you're not bringing your own band. They're not bringing their own band. You know, I mean, like I think we had um, – you know, the Black Sabbath were was Tony Iommi and 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 Ozzy. Right. So, but the band were with with Phil Collins on drums. If you well, they still don't use the drummer. Yeah. So there's all these. So 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 it was, so it was it was making sure that everyone knew their parts. And then just to go back because it's another interesting thing. Um, this is live. This is live. Yeah. Once. Okay. Question, because I some road dogs. I've gotten into this. Your act is playing the Super Bowl. Would you ever do it live, or too many risks? Yeah, I you know it's funny. I I think that I would love to do a live. You know, I, you know, I just think it's funny. We did this thing. We made a huge mistake at the Olympic Games. <laughs> the Olympic, the opening Olympic Games. Okay, it always haunts me. The where Paul McCartney performed, and they wanted him to mime, and he he can't mime because he doesn't use in monitors. He doesn't use. He refuses to use in in monitors. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he uses he uses you know. Oh, he uses regular monitors. Uses doesn't use in ear monitors. Yeah, he uses wedges. Right. And uh, and I said, well, maybe we could still mime. And I worked out this way in which he could do it. And he forgot he was miming. And so there were two. They were doing playback. I recorded the band playing live. Right. And then he he started too early. And there were two Paul McCartney's playing at the same time. <laughs> and I pressed the button to go to live in front of a billion people. You know, I had to press this red button. And I said to him, God, you know, yes, it didn't go very well, Paul. I guess, yeah, but to be honest, if you're going to mess up, do it in front of a billion people. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like you Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, I don't know. I think that I love, I love, you know, I'm a natural risk taker. And it's like one of those, yeah, yeah, well, let's just go for it. You know, what's going to happen? I mean, there are, listen, there are worse things happen in the world every day. You know, I don't believe in, you know, there's this. You know, you did Paul McCartney in the opening of the Olympics. Did yeah. you do the closing too? No. Okay, so you do the Queen's Jubilee, and that works out great. Yeah, I do the Queen's Jubilee, and and then I was like, sat and thinking, what right? What do I do now? Right, you work with the Queen, right? Now, now, what do I do now? And the phone's not ringing. My manager phoned me up and said, you know, the the you know, the, the, I've got I've got you a gig, and I was like, great. You know, am I working with Supergrass? I loved Supergrass, and they were like, no, you're working with. The irony, did Supergrass not make it because the guys were so unattractive? I don't know. They made some nice records. No, they made phenomenal they records. The money's a great album. Exactly. And I bought those albums, zero impact in yeah. the U.S. Yeah, none. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, but you know, because you're working with a 15-year-old classical singer. I was like, oh, uh, right. And, it doesn't, you ha- and he said, you haven't got anything else. You've got nothing. You know, this is it. And so I did this record with this girl called Hayley Weston Ra, who's a New Zealand singer. And it was an album that, that um, I did by it was like it was like painting my numbers. I was like, okay, this track will get onto Radio 2 in the UK, this track will get onto daytime television, this track will 
and she ended up selling. She was. She ended up. It ended up being the fastest selling classical record of all time in the UK and sold two million copies. Well, wow. did that? Did you ride along with that? That burnish your image? Yeah, it completely. I, I bet to a friend of mine when I was trying to be cool, and I said, "I guess I'll never work with any of your bands again." He goes, "No." It goes, it goes, it's amazing. Even Chris Martin, I said to Chris, Chris Martin, the Coldplay singer, we had lunch and he goes, it's amazing the success you've had. And I was like, yeah, but I'll never work. He goes, no, you won't. <laughs> the, I mean, I was, I was, I, and I was like, you know, it was, t- I suddenly became the king of crossover classical, which is, you know, I, you know I'm not sure how, 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 how much you're allowed to use rude words on your podcast. No, we can, no problem. But it, I, it, the email correspondent was always goat shagging. You know, for some reason, it was it was tantamount to goat shagging. I don't know why we always said that it was it was it was it was, and that's that. Then then I got busted for being rude about crossover classical by someone. You know, because I, I just it wasn't a world that I liked. It was that easy path. So you had you know the the best of times and the worst of times. You had success, but not in the field. You I had wanted. success, and I had yeah, and I could have then gone and done everything everything you know crossover classical with you know it was you know they, they, they were queuing up. Because I was, I'd opened that door to, and it was then that um, with this undercurrent I mentioned before, my father wanted to yellow submarine, um, and we had an idea that um, the Cirque du Soleil and the Beatles signed their deal to do the Love Show, and Cirque du Soleil had got a DJ in to remix the Beatles songs, and it was a disaster. And I did, we, none of us knew this, knew about this. And I met Neil Aspinall, who was the head of Apple. And my father at that time was was very, actually quite seriously ill. He was in the hospital. And I just had this success. with it. They, People just saw it as success. They didn't, hadn't listened to the record right. I'd done. And, um, and even Paul came up to me and goes, well done with that record. I was like, you know, obviously <laughs> you hadn't listened to it with a bad version of Ave Maria on it. And... Um, I said to Neil, and I, and I was into that chopping up stuff at that stage, and I said to Neil Aspinall, it's one of those, you know, I said, you know, I reckon I can create a Beatles concert that never happened by chopping up their tapes. He went, really? I said, yeah, I've got an idea. I could do this drum introduction, and, and I can imagine, you know, like how the band would perform. And let's face it, they played live on all their tapes, so I could just chop up the tapes and create a, create a sound bed for, for a show. And he said, okay, you've got three months, and I'm not paying you. I, from from then, I went into a, a room at Abbey Road. I, to begin with, I didn't even have any speakers. They just gave me headphones. And I did like four or five different things for the show. And, and did it take three months? No, no, it took three months for me to transfer a lot of the tapes. Right, they, I was just going to ask that. I'm yeah, glad you said yeah. that. Yeah, they, they, um, and, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, it, it, I, my dad came out of hospital. He was being treated for cancer and... Um, he didn't really like it very much. It was funny. He did at the time. He was like, "I think you know. I think you pushed this a little bit too far here. I don't think I like it." And Paul came in, and Ringo came in, and Livia and Yoko, and I played them some stuff. And I did this this version of um, "Within You, Without You, and Tomorrow Never Knows." I'd mixed together, and my dad banned me from playing it to them. And then Paul goes, "You should push it farther, further." And I went, "Oh, I've got this thing, you know." Right, right, right. I don't know. I'm, like, I'm pretending, but for the listeners, I'm hold, pretending to hold up a disc. Of course, he didn't, he didn't have it on right, disc. Right. And um, and I played to him because this is brilliant. This is what we should do. And it sort of that then unlocked that door. Um, and I remember being in New York um, with a. I was I was again. I was writing music with a for a singer, and uh, and and I've got a phone call saying, "Yeah, you've, we're under contract. You're doing this show. You're doing this Beatles show." And I remember phoning up a, fr- a friend of mine saying, "You know, it was a producer and said, I'm not sure if I should do this because if I do this, this is what I'll be doing. It fits everyone's." Right. You know, and and I said, I'm not sure if I want to do, you know, I want to be the, the legacy guy. And he said to me, um, you do know that if you don't do this, I'll do it. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. and and I thought to myself, you know, you got a good point. And I actually remind myself when I'm working on this stuff. It's like, you know, yeah, I'm pretty lucky to be to be trusted with this material. So yeah, I that was and that was I did I did the Love Show in Vegas, and that oh, opened the door. Okay, it was billed as a collaboration between yourself and your father. Yeah, and it was. It was. It was to a to a to a, it's bizarre. He was he was producing me. I guess he produced me. I was a child, but he was he was he was producing me in respect. He would come in mainly on a Thursday. We'd always go to the same restaurant for lunch. He'd come in on a Thursday because he lived out of London, and I would play him what I'd done. And he'd go, "No, this is you know this is you know." And even though his hearing wasn't that great, he would be able to judge it and give me advice um, but I would create I created the stuff and mixed it well as I say I didn't know till this and, day that it all started with you yeah. and Neil yeah um, and then and then what happened what happened was um, I got quite defensive because my my dad was a big influence obviously he's a big influence on me full stop but he was a big and Ringo came once and said you know well you know, I said, Dad's just getting coffee. He goes, well, I know, you know, I know that he hasn't, he's not, he's not, you know. I said, no, but that's not, he is, he, he is my, you know, my guidance on this. And then when I went out to Vegas and I did a lot of the work out in the, in the show itself, in the theater, we built the theater, designed the speaker system. Um, I, I remember I read it, Here Comes the Sun. I read it, the introduction to Here Comes the Sun. And, and, uh, and I suddenly realized my dad wasn't there. And, and it felt really dirty that, that Cirque du Soleil would hear this before he heard it. And then you realize, you know, it's then, we, you know, it's easy to take for And then funny enough, you know, when um, <clears throat> he felt slightly excluded because because I was just going off there and with a mouse, you know, right. and a computer and doing this stuff. And it was, he, I remember saying to him, he goes, it's amazing, Giles. You know, it's like, you know, audio, audio to you is like putty, isn't it? The way you can manipulate in all sorts of ways, the way he would speak. Was he hip on all the new technologies? No, but he loved it. Okay. You, know, he, you know, he was he was hip as far as mind you. The fact of the matter is, is that I get assistants now that think I'm good on Pro Tools because I did Love, but I really have no idea at all. I mean, my sessions look like a Jackson Pollock painting. You know, nothing nothing tidy about the way I worked, and and it's it's funny. I mean, I think if I'd known my stuff, I would have done a worse job. I mean, the, I started off with there's a drum a drums the the uh, there's a drum solo from the end. Which is a song on Abbey Road, and I and I decided to mix um, "Get Back" as an introduction to it, and put the piano chord uh, back. You know, a bunch of stuff. And the way you do that, if you're a modern artist, is you put a grid and you put the drums in time, and you put everything and you lock everything together. And I started doing that, and I put Ringo perfectly in time, and it completely killed the the feel of the band. And then I realized, okay. It has to be the band dictating the heartbeat of this show, and not me chopping the music up. If that makes any sense. Yes, totally. So, um, so I learned. You know, it, again, you have to, you have to, you need to learn, know when you do things badly is the is the is the key to, to, to key to good work. So, um, he was, uh, and then when it, it came to we, Olivia Harrison came to see me and said, you know, I don't want to use the demo to while my guitar gently weeps. The director of the show wants to use the demo to while my guitar gently weeps. Um, which is just a Georgian acoustic guitar. It was on an anthology. And I said, well, you know, I had an idea. I said, you know, well, I could get my dad to finish it. He could do a string arrangement. And and Danny Harrison was there. And he goes, do you think he could? I said, yeah, and I'll phone him up. I phoned him up there. I said, right. And he said to me, and it's funny, you know, go back to that, that conversation we had in his, when he was dying. He said, uh, I said, Dad, he goes, I'm not sure I can do it anymore. I said, he goes, I haven't, I've done, I haven't done a string arrangement for 10 years. I said, I'm sure you can, Dad. And I'd actually done a... There's the introduction, which is on the record on the show, I did 
And I said, you know, I, 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 and we sat at the piano. It was really nice. I sat at the piano. I said, and he goes, oh, that's nice. There's a G minor progression. He goes, well, you, you know, this is. And he went off. And then we went to the studios and recorded a full, a, it's on film, actually, a, a string section playing. And everyone knew in the orchestra that this would be the last time that he would work. I knew it would be the last time he'd work. He was 80 years old or 79 years old. Couldn't hear anything. And we steered through, and it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful arrangement. If you ever hear it, it's a, it's a really sympathetic arrangement. And actually, his memorial service, I, I, um, I had a, guy, a singer-songwriter who's very good called James, James Bay, who's a friend of mine. He sang it. I wanted someone agnostic, and we had a string section play it. And it's a, just a, it's just like my dad was really good. He was really good. You know, it's that I couldn't do that. It was he was he's really good. Okay, now you're doing the Beatles Love Show. You know it's going to be success. You're not sure. I had no idea. I thought, I, you know, I didn't want to do crossover classical music. And this was like a fun thing to do. And it was also a really good way of getting to know my dad and going through his closet and learning stuff. You know, I went through every single take of every single Beatles track um, and made notes, you know, because I thought I'd better. Le- and in fact, I thought I'd get fired. I, I, I really thought it's such a bad idea. The son of George Martin chops up the Beatles tapes for a show in Las Vegas is disgusting. It'd probably, probably read about it in your blog. It right. has to be a shocker. You know, it's it's like I, I I disagree with the principle entirely, apart from the fact that for me it was better than doing the other thing I was doing. And and um and it came out and everyone liked it. And I and I was you know, I, I honestly thought as I, I thought if I could do one thing I'll back up all the tapes because they hadn't been backed up. And then if I can finish... You were literally using the master tapes? Yeah, you have to use the master tapes. They sound great. And so I backed but up... But isn't there a limit, you know, what kind of condition... Well, you only have to play them once to back That's them up. That's my point. But yeah. I'm surprised that no one had done that previously. They hadn't done it previously. And so I thought, you know what? If I, can, if I get fired and leave one thing behind, at least I've backed up the tapes properly. You know, that's, well, that was my right. motivation. I thought, you know, at least I've done something great. And, uh, and it came out, and, it, you know, it's still going now. I think it's been seen by 7.5 million people. Now, that was recently redone. Yeah, I went back and redid it. Um, and what did you change? There were, there were, the show was looking old. It was mainly a visual thing. The show was looking old and looking a bit tired. And myself and Dominic, who's the guy I did the show with, who's a lovely man. Actually, his name is Dominic Champagne. That's a great name. Um, we we went we took together and we started looking old and we persuaded everyone to invest. I remixed the entire show from start to front because you know we if you think about it when we did the show we did it on computers we had to do it on computers I couldn't bring Abbey Road to and we're using plugins and all sorts of things and they've got a lot better right and we transferred we I retransferred all the tapes as well and so we did and then I bought new speakers and 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 you know we listened differently. That's the funny thing about music as we listen differently. Um, how music is when you remember it and how music is when you listen to it again, it can be, can be different, can be worse. Go a little better. deeper there. Well, it demands of, you know, when, the sh- when we did the show, it was the best-sounding show. Probably, I think, one of the best-sounding shows in the world, probably. I mean, it should be. We had 7,000 speakers in a room, even though we're in the round. And by the time three years ago, you know, Celine Dion sounded better because there's more weight in the bass, there's more, you know, there's more visceral presence in the, in, the no, in the sound that's hitting you and all this sort of stuff. And the Beatles show sounded light. Um, you know, we, 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 we demand, we, we expect this sort, of, this sort of thing to hit us in the chest now, which didn't happen 13 years ago. And so and I, I was working in the, in the theatre and I, 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 I said to the guys, I said, I need 200, around about two, 200, 250 hertz is what thumps you in the chest. I, you know, it's bizarre, it's not lower. It's, a, it's around about that. And they were like, 
You know, I want them, and you're breaking the system. You're breaking the system. I said, well, how do I not break the system? He goes, you need more speakers. So I got up. I walked across the casino, knocked on the casino, and said, can you buy me some more speakers, please? And he said, yeah, they're $180,000. He goes, are they going to make a difference to you? I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, <laughs> like spoiled child. And that's the way it works. And now with them, the casino were incredibly – I've actually, it's funny. You, My previous – if you'd asked me, and it's Vegas, I'm not, as you can tell, probably from right. I'm not Mr. Vegas, but they're they're actually they're they're very supportive, and I like them. I like still like the people there a lot, and they were like, "Listen, if 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 you think it's going to make a difference, then okay, we'll do it." So I I redid things. How did you end up remixing Sergeant Pepper? It was a it wasn't something that I necessarily felt compelled to do. Um, a lot of this stuff comes from the 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 desire comes from it's the fiftieth anniversary. Well it's the fiftieth anniversary, what are we gonna do? You know, there's outtakes, there's there's this and and I'd played around with um privately played around with remixing Beatles tracks. You know, I did it for love and th- they were the Love album was very well received as far as an audio perspective goes. Um I get given a lot of credit for things that I didn't do. You know, you put the tapes into a machine and you put the faders up and it sounds pretty good. Right, you know? right, right, right. And generally what happens is the processes that make a record in those days, the the, the continual. I mean, like if you if you remaster and remaster a um you know, a quarter inch tape that's a that, that or a half inch tape that's a mix, it gets worn down. So the, right. the you know, tapes get worn down. Um and with Sergeant Pepper, Apple Corps um, who were the Beatles company. They wanted to do something about the 50th anniversary re-release and we talked about it and they wanted to go through all the outtakes and stuff like that. And funnily enough, my father had, my father passed away. Um, so, yeah, and, and I took some time off, obviously, took two weeks off and then I went back to the studios and the first voice I heard was his, which is kind of odd. And it's, I, Yoko said to me when we were doing the love show, I was sitting here with the love show and I used voices in, in the love show of the Beatles and she said, it's funny, you know, John's just a voice now. And I know how she felt. And and we started remixing um, Sergeant Pepper. You know, the, they, you know, people want to do a surround, so you end up doing a stereo. And we got it wrong. It didn't sound right. And then after about four songs, I suddenly realized, actually, this, this kind of sounds sounds good. Um, not better. It just sounds good. And, and the monos had been... You know, I listened. To, I never heard the mono version of Sergeant Pepper. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not that sort of person. It's a terrible thing to say. I should be, but I never heard the monos. And the mono mixes are different. I think they're kind of they're more uh, claustrophobic. Um, they're more psychedelic in some ways. There's more effects on them because they because the Beatles couldn't put effects on the stereo. The technology wasn't there. It's ADT voices with stereo. The voice, you know, the, there's a bunch of things that um, just the very speed techniques they used weren't there. And so we we started doing it. And again, you know, you do these things behind closed doors. And I actually said to Apple... Well, how did you switch from surround to doing a stereo? Remix? You do a stereo first. You have to do a stereo. My my pathway to surround is stereo. Okay. Because you have to get the stereo right before you do the surround. Otherwise, the the weight's not there in the surround. It becomes... I don't know if you've, you hear some surround mixes, and I don't want to criticize anyone else's work, but some surround mixes sound too... Ambient, they sound. You know, the the. If you think about the cool thing about surround is you have a center speaker, you have that mono thing that can hit you, and it's like a. I see it like smashing toffee with a toffee hammer. We have that center, and everything can explode around it, like when you listen to a great mono record, and that happens in your head anyway. That's the way I see it. And so with with Sergeant Pepper, I um, I said, I listen. If, if this isn't right, then 
and you have to and it's a brave thing to do and then um it came out and and people people liked it you know it's funny it's funny it's someone wrote to me the other day and said like, we can't get hold of a couple of the vinyl mix that Sgt. Pepe did last year because it sold out and I went to Universal and I went you know you can you can buy the original one which I should say do buy that one but you know I don't think about the marketing aspects of it when I do it I just think about you know what bothers me I suppose my motivation is that when you play a record that's important to you to a younger generation and they think it sounds old. They think it sounds old because it may not be as loud, it may not be as stereo, it may not be as immersive as the tracks they're listening to. And we live in a world of a global jukebox um, where there's no reverence to... I mean, it's coming back, but there's no reverence to putting on a record. You can have, you know, Kendrick Lamar next to Loose and Sky with Diamonds. It doesn't make any difference. And the thing about music and the thing about recording is that it doesn't... It, it, a recording is by that it is a capturing a 25 year old person at their prime and I want them to be 25 forever and I want them to be bursting out of your speakers um, not in an angry compressed you know to the max way but I just want to make sure that you feel like you're in the room with them and so uh, that was kind of the motivation okay when we turn to this conversation with Giles Martin Sound experience leader for Sonos and son of George Martin and producer and mixer extraordinaire in his own right in a moment. You're listening to the Bob Left Sets podcast recorded at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Each week I interview a new guest to get their story. While they're here, we take photos and shoot some videos so you can see what they really look like. Want to see what Giles looks like? Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow at TuneIn. Let's dive right back in with my guest, Giles Martin, producer extraordinaire. Well, it's kind of interesting. I have no problem with what you... At first, when I first heard about it, it's a little bit of a hump. What you did with love. That's a totally new work. Remixing something that I know so well. It's all akin to owning a vinyl record and then getting the CD when you were listening for the skips and the pops that weren't there anymore. You know the originals so well. Yeah. So that, do you have plans to uh, remix any more uh, um, Beatles records? Not at the moment. I mean, there's, there's talking about it, um, but um, it's not, you know, and I think to answer that, I, I, com- I, completely, I completely understand what you're saying. I kind of, you know, part of me agrees with it. At the same time, I'm not doing it for you, Bob. Exactly. That's what no, I was thinking. You know, your, your explanation is very no, good. No, no, I, 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 I think that... I think if if anyone wants to if listen, if we get to the stage where people are loving the pops and the clicks, if we people listen that much, we live in a world where, you know, um, we hear things that we don't listen. You know, it's ubiquitous wall of sound constantly going on. There's noise constantly going on, and and that time which you talk about, where you have that record and you love that record, you put it on. You know, if there's a reason, if you know, there's there's two ways. You know, even if people don't like what I do. They're listening to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with that. It's like, great, don't like it. That's super. That's why I don't mind you. And when I wrote back to you, I right. said, well, I don't mind you saying this stuff. It's like, you know, it, the fact you have passion and opinion is what I like. That's the whole point. It's like, you know, great. You know, it's, we, we're not, we're, we, we, live in a, we live in a world where it's just a record. And, th- and there's various moments in our lives where they're not just records. They're things that mean a great deal to us. Now, I'm not trying to take that away from you in any way whatsoever. 
Absolutely not. But if I can stir things up so people like slap people around the face and go, see, I was wrong or I was right or whatever, at least it's, it's getting attention. At least you have an opinion. Now, you also work with Sonos at this point. How did you end up coming to work with Sonos? Well, that was a strange thing that happened about four years ago. I was actually working, I did Paul McCartney's album, New. This was, a, this was back, and I was working over here in L.A. in Henson, and a guy came to see me, and I was with a great mix engineer called Spike Stent, who mixed I know Spike. Yeah. Good friend of mine, lovely Spike. And uh, he came to see us, and it was pre-Sonos had a speaker called the Play One, and and they, 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 they Thomas Meyer, who came to see me, he said, uh, you know, can we, give you some speakers. And there's about the fourth speaker company that come up to me because since the Love record, there was, you know, Love's used for surround hi-fi. Right. It's, it's a, you know, I, the Socks and Sandals Brigade, I suit. And um, and I, I kind of, and my, I, I got her, my wife goes, you know, what are these boxes doing in our, you know, there's speakers, and what do we want speakers for? And I'm like, oh, they, they, you might like these ones because they're small, you know. <laughs> and I plugged them in, and I, and I like, I'd, my, my attitude was like, I think, thank you very much. And I thought, they, actually, they sound pretty good. And then they sent me a... Um, Just for the record, the Sonos One is a small this was, speaker. This was pre-Sonos One. This was a five and a three. They okay. Sent me, and they sent me a play bar. And I was like, wow, this is great. I've got free gear. And, you know, I'm a bloke, so I like, I like you know, not to be sexist, but we, we, tend to, we tend to be slightly more obsessive over gear, you know, with sad individuals. Right. Um, I'm one of them, okay. Yeah, I know, I know. And then, and then what happened was is they, brought the, they, they showed me a one and I had comments on it. I thought it was limiting too much and there was various things I didn't like that it was doing. And then This was before or after it was manufactured? Before it was manufactured. Okay. And they realized I was engaged and they asked me, they said they have Rick Rubin on their soundboard and they have Hans Zimmer. I said, would I join their soundboard? And I said, yeah. And then I thought, well, if I'm, and it was one of the things they sort of get, got me more involved in the company. I think they gave me some shares and it was this thing. I was like, you know, I should get... I should, um, and I like them. You know, they were the first speaker company. People had come up to me before and said, you know, what do you think of our speakers? They come see them in the studios. And I said, and I'd say what I thought. And they would go, you're wrong. And I go, okay. You know, what? That's, but that's great. I don't mind being wrong. Absolutely. But, but don't get upset for me. But just so I know, it used to be the standard in UK studios were tannoys. Okay. Yeah, it's all sorts now. Okay. So when you mix, what do you mix to? I mix, on a, I mix using ATCs. They're okay. a company. For about tw- I'm living the, I live in the country. They're about 20 miles away. I didn't know this until recently. But a lot of people now use ATCs. Nigel Godrich, who actually also works with Sonos, he uses, he uses ATCs, I think. Um, they're, and they're, they're, it's a different world. I mean, I asked for a, to buy a new pair of ATCs, and the guy said, can you wait a month? We have to build them. You know, so it's a different, different world to the world. And so when with Sonos, like, they, they're the first company that asked me what I didn't like. Right. And, they, and when, I said, when I started giving them compliments, they switched off. Like we don't, we're not interested. And then the head of um, the head of the company came to see me and said, "You know, this is Sonos. This is Sonos." And said, "You know, would you be our sound experience leader?" And I mean, that's a. I said no. <laughs> I said for a start, for a start, it sounds too too right. too American for me. I said, "What does it mean?" He goes, "Leading our sound experience." I was like, "Well, obviously that's but what does that well, mean?" Right, right. And it's kind of like my job is to is almost like head of sound, I suppose, the company where the the, the appealing thing I like. I like breaking, I like pushing technology, pushing the way we listen. That's what appealed to me about the love show. It's like making people, locking people in a room in Vegas and making them listen to great music is, was, it's, there's something in, in, in my subversive mind that appeals to me about that. And the fact, if you think about it, we can't get away from the fact we make files now. We don't make records. We do make files. That's what happens. I know that, you know, vinyl is cut from files a lot of the time. Exactly. That's why I don't understand it. Yeah. So, so. Oh, just to stop there for a second. Yeah. 
If we're starting with the file, how can the vinyl record sound better than the file? That's a that's a really and and it's a very good question. And does it sound better or does it not sound? But there's something about vinyl that takes away the top and the bottom, and it does also. It's you know it it's it's a you know I was you know I'm I'm a really you know deep technical person when it comes to mixing, and I and people you know maybe mistakenly like what I do. But when I did Sgt. Pepper, I, you know, I remastered and remastered. And I mastered with a guy in Abbey Road, and then I mastered myself. And, and then we cut the vinyl. He did a half-speed vinyl cut, which is you know, a, a deeper, right. more precise cut. Other than the vinyl, it's like, wow, this sounds great. And, I, and, and it makes me feel, in my sort of strange control freak way, it makes me slightly annoyed because I didn't do this. I didn't, you know, the vinyl was just a happenstance that went on vinyl. I liked the sound of it. Does that make sense? I'm not totally sure. So we had the file, so I've a, and we're losing something on the vinyl. You're losing so the vinyl. So inherently, vinyl has a sound. Are you saying that you like the vinyl sound? Or I, li- that- I like the I like the vinyl sound of the, of the Sgt. Pepper mix. I did. It sounds nice spatially. It sounds smooth. It sounds good. But I didn't. I'm not responsible for that. Vinyl did that, not me. And that's what that's what I. It's a, it's a it's a it's a thing. And and the, the, see, the thing that appeals. Um, going back to the process with 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 Sonos is the fact that they they if if the dream really is to is to for whether it's myself or Spike or whoever in a studios you can make a decision on this is how it should sound and you send it down a wire and it appears in your home exactly the same right that's what appealed to me with with some like Sonos where you can go okay I can t- tweet the speaker and I started doing this for people's speakers they have in the marketplace where I was like. So I can change that sound of that play bar and make it, and and we, I did it three times the play bar without people knowing, you know, change the sound of it after people bought it. I know you you did updates, yeah, and I'm aware of this. What did you actually change? Well, it's funny. Rick Rubin was unhappy with the play bar, and I and and this is before I was heavily involved. And he and he phoned me about it, and I and I said, yeah, it sounds a bit weird for stereo music. It doesn't sound sounds like it's doing something nasty. And it was doing pretty well. It was selling. It was getting good, good reviews. I've never. I've always been interested in bad reviews anyway. So it was getting good reviews, and we worked out a way of. of it's always tough when you have a, a a speaker. Like a lot of products now are more than two channel speakers. They do. A, they have to create wide width right. and sort of stuff. You have two fake five point one. Yeah, or it's actually fake stereo because you're. If you imagine the way we the way you and I would traditionally listen to music is with two speakers, the two mono speakers. Without getting too techy here, but and you have a you have a, you have a phantom center, right? So there's no center speaker, but you you sit in the middle, and what's equal left and right is in mono, and then the rest of the left of left and right. Modern day speakers that pretty much everyone makes now that are stereo, they have phantom left and right. They're trying to fire things out left and right, which means you can have, often have a hole in the center, like a like a uh, you know like a, like, a, like a lifesaver. Let me ask you a question. If we're talking specifically about Sonos product, the three, the five, the one. What happens then when I pair them and I get stereo? They, they work in a traditional way. Okay, so the software is such that if I'm using one or I'm using two, it makes an adjustment. Yeah, yeah. They know where they are and they know what they're doing and, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the beauty of it. So, yeah, with the play, with, we, we changed the play bar because Rick said it doesn't sound like a stereo. And I was like, well, it's not a stereo, so how do we make it sound like a stereo? So I had a very clever team and we worked on that. But it's, it's fun. It's like... It's a bit like it's in a funny way. It's a bit like the Love Show, where in in that theatre there is in Vegas, I'm in control of the input and the output. 
So I'm in control. If you go and sit there and you don't like it, then it's purely my fault. Right. Opposed to if you make a mix and then you, um, you know, you listen. I'm not one of those people that has an opinion of whether you listen to. I mean, I fell in love with music listening to on AM radio. So, so I think you could be with a loved one on a sunny day and, the, and, the, and a record comes on. It could sound like the best it's ever sounded, even though it doesn't sound like that, if that makes sense. You fill yes. in the gaps. Um, at the same time, <clears throat> if you can facilitate, if, I, if there can be somewhere where, where a bunch of us creators have an influence on the output side as well, then it can only be a good thing because um, very, very clever audio people have no idea what a mix should sound like. And then these speakers adjust for the listening environment. Yeah, it's it, it, it's fine. I mean, I was I've known friends that um, that are hi-fi buffs, and they'll spend you know thirty to hundred thousand dollars on a speaker, and then put them next to a wall, and you think, well, you know, you might as well spend yeah five hundred dollars on a speaker then, because you're going to get the amount of bass resonance you get from next to a wall. As a you know, the, you know, where you place something is really important in audio because of because of a room, and so. Um, I, when I first started working on Sonos, I came across a guy called Tim Sheen who was um, like a sort of a clever bearded elf wandering around with a microphone with a speaker in the corner of the room. And he was just on his own in this room. And I said, what's he doing? And they said, well, he's, he, thinks he, can, he thinks he can speak and tune itself, you know, or he can tune to a room. And I said, that's great. And, and no one else was that happy because the ethos of, of a product not having a constant and changing was something that speakers don't really do at that stage. Um, and Tim Machine was, it, you know, then the company got behind him and we got behind him and, and it was a, it would end up being a really cool thing where you can, you know, you could, you can, uh, you don't have to worry about where you put a speaker. So what's the future of home audio? Well, I think, I think that we, you know, we, you and I need to talk about the future of home audio and the future of, um, Music distribution is a bigger question. The future of home audio, I, I think that, I think we listen, I think that if we can, if we can make music as real as possible, I like the idea, that I like that vinyl's coming back. I like the fact that people have to make an effort to listen. Um, I also love the fact that with something like Sonos, you can have it all, you know, I can, I sit with my kids in the kitchen and I have a bunch of pieces of paper which have reggae, funk, jazz, soul on them. And they get points if I put on a piece of music, and they can guess which genre it is. <laughs> you know, just cause, and then they, they love doing it. You know, it's like you know, I don't know why we just—it's just one of those things. And and I love the fact that you can think of a song and play it. But I also, and I think home audio is better than it's ever ever has been in that respect, where it's you know you can listen out loud and listen collectively, and it doesn't matter. Um, but the future, I, the 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 way that voice is going and that speakers are becoming a portal um, is interesting. Um, I think that that speed of the speed of thought behind thinking of a song and playing it is very clever, is very good. Well, I find a lot of times in my work area, you know, I have an amazing amount of stereo gear. And I will call out to the voice-activated speaker where Alexa or now the new Sonos. I'd rather do that, even though it's coming out of one little speaker. Yeah, and it's getting that – the thing is it's getting that better and better. That's the thing. That's the thing. I think the, I think the, I think the question is, is how do we – I think how do we do improve search and discovery? You know, at one stage, I spent a lot of my, I spent a lot of my own money thinking of thinking of this um, this portal where you could travel through time, like a um, you know you could you could find influences in music 
So if you if you like this, then what went on before and what went on before, and you could you could you could you could search music through influences and stuff like that. And and there's got to be ways in which we can, you know, in the same way we I miss the record sleeve. I miss the fact that you know that I knew that Jim Gordon played on you know, right. Layla, and you know all that kind of stuff. That connection would be a, would be. I think there's a there's a, there's a there's it's that thing when you go into a record store. And I remember actually I was going to work on a show with Quincy at one stage. And I thought, I've got to learn about the heritage of black music. Where do you start? And I went to a record store called Honest John's on Portobello Road. And I walked in there and started talking to this guy. And I was there for six and a half hours. And he played everything, you know, Ella Fitzgerald records, you know, you know, you know, Wilson Pickett kind of rarities. And it was just, it was, it was, it was like, this is, this is, how do we get this? We, you well, know. I certainly believe that music discovery is broken. Yeah. I believe as a result, it's like the internet at large. There's so many messages coming that the average person is overwhelmed. But in the time you have left, which is pretty lengthy in terms of your life, hopefully, what would you like to achieve or see happen? I would like, I, I think that it's, it's, it's difficult to, it's, it's really easy to, um, to say it wasn't like it was in my day. But I would like uh, generations to be as touched by music as I was, and, and not reliant on visual, as they seem, as people seem to be now. I don't think they'll ever go because because visual always wins. I mean, I've worked on films, I've worked on. Well, shows. that's an interesting thing. I was talking to somebody. They're talking about how powerful Instagram is, which makes no sense to me because all you have is the picture. Yeah. But, and we may not be at the end of the stream here. Now, on streaming services, the number of plays there exceeds YouTube. So maybe we have hope. Yeah, and I think, and I think that it's, it's – so, so I think, the, I think what, what would I like to achieve? There are so many things I'd like to achieve. I like to – you know, there's, there's, there's sort of shows and experiences and visceral things I'm working on that, that involve music. So, you, you, know, you, know, you know, even you had one idea that they're like walking through a – you know, walking through a groove of a record, you know. So imagine Ben being straight. You know, for kids to realize what the what the what the what the I scale can picture record, it. I've know, seen it, enough. You know, blow yeah. up pictures. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's like a giant it's, mountain it's range. The, you know, there's, there's 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 fun stuff. You know, I mean, we work on a couple of things with some creators where we where we where I like the idea. And he says going against the visual world, but I like the idea of there being, um, you know, the, the the fun thing about the love show is like you're creating a. You, you, you know, it's by no means perfect, but you're, you're getting kids to discover music and listen to and connect music and listen to music in different ways, and they go out feeling different. If you can make people feel something different, then then that's great. So, so what what appeals to me is, um, you know, even with Sergeant Pepper, I did this Atmos mix of Sergeant Pepper, which is basically a, a room with fifty five speakers in it, and a bunch of artists and creators have been in there. And they come out in floods of tears. You know, they come up floods of tears because they feel like what you can do with, with immersive audio is you can put the band in the room with you. You can get reflections from Studio 2, which is what we do, and you can make feel, people feel like you're in this space with, with, with the band, you know. And it's, it's, it's getting that. If you can, if in any work I do, if I can just stimulate that feeling in some way, if I can get people to, there's nothing better. I remember even working on that concert in Japan all those years ago, Joni Mitchell sat in front of me and she played Hajira on the guitar and she was sitting as far as away from you are, you know, we are about five feet, five feet away from each other. And 
And I wasn't even a big Joni Mitchell fan. I didn't even know much about it. You know, I was, I was a blues guy. And, and I couldn't work out where the music was coming from. It was coming from, it was coming from, I saw her mouth moving and I could see her playing the guitar, but it was like this sort of, this sort of ethereal noise that was, that was hitting me. And it was, it's better than, for me, it's better than anything else in life, having that experience. And so I suppose that, through the huge privilege I've had from my father's son, I've experienced some things. I mean, like, you know, I remember being a tape op, which is an assistant engineer, and, my, and working on a Mark Knopfler session. He played acoustic guitar. And I was like, is that him playing, or is I'm listening to a record? You know, it's that weird thing. And you, or being in the same room as Stevie Wonder when he's playing the piano. Or, and if I can get people, whether it's through Sonos, whether it's through mixing, or it's doing shows, or doing exhibits, or, if I can get that feeling of inspiration closer to the listener then that would be an achievement that's what we try and do well you've just gone to the mountaintop there i don't think i can add anything giles you've been a fabulous guest both telling the stories of yourself the beatles and your father thanks so much for being here oh pleasure Bob. thank you so much that wraps up this week's episode of the bob left sets podcast recorded here at the tuning studios in venice california I hope you like listening to this conversation with Giles Martin, producer extraordinaire. Please let me know what you think of the show. Email me at bobatleftsets.com. Until next time, I'm Bob Leftsets. <laughs>